Welcome to Ted's Podagogy, the podcast about teaching for teachers. Today our guest is Daniel Willingham, Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia and author of Why Don't Students Like School, Raising Kids Who Read and The Reading Mind, and one of the most quoted men in education. He is perhaps best known for his pioneering work in how we learn to read, and that is the topic of today's podcast. Dan, thank you for joining us and uh, on this podcast, um, all the way from America. My pleasure. So today we're going to discuss how we learn to read, and you have written on this a number of times, each time making the science of it progressively more accessible. I hope so, yeah. That, that's certainly my aim. Is, um, uh, the reason I got interested in education at all, um, uh, some of your listeners may know, many won't, that I, I started life not as an educational psychologist, but as a cognitive psychologist doing uh, basic research in, in how memory works. Uh, and did that for about uh, exclusively that for about 10 years post PhD and the reason I got interested in education was exactly this problem of translation um, and I don't do original research in education uh, again exactly for this reason I there's so much wonderful research out there now but it all resides in journals and in arcane places and it's not explained for people who have, who don't you know do this uh, professionally for their whole life mm-hmm. um so yeah that's that's exactly what what I aim to do is to take very very complex theories and make them comprehensible and and hopefully of utility for educators So for reading, you single out three processes children need to master. Do you want to run through those? Yes, I think the the three processes of reading that that need to be in place for a reader to be successful are are first, fluent decoding, second, uh, uh, comprehension, and third, motivation. Um, and there are some, you know, some of the some of the aspects of this. I think uh, of each of these three processes uh, will be quite familiar to educators. Um, I think that in in each of them, there's there's frequently, um, at, at least in the feedback I've gotten from from the book, there are some surprises in uh, in each of these three processes as well. And each of them on their own is, as you as you would expect, uh, quite complex. And um, so the first stage would be. Um, would would be fluent decoding, right? So the uh, and again, quite intuitive that uh, the reason we call it decoding is that print is a code and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a code for sound. Letters correspond to uh, to speech sounds, uh, and so children need to learn how to uh, learn how to break that code. Uh, and of course, there's an enormous amount of controversy over how that's taught. I think uh, even more in Britain than than in the U.S. Things have Certainly, things yeah. have really settled down in the U.S. And um, part of it has has that have been, has been legislation that uh, most states uh, they don't exactly mandate that you must teach phonics, but they mandate that there's going to be a certain number of phonics tests at the end of the year. Of course, this varies state by state, so it's hard to generalize. Um, and so most most uh, instructors here are using some mix of phonics and what what's typically called uh, has been traditionally called whole language methods. But there's uh, there's a there's a fair amount of phonics instruction that's that's going on here. Uh, so there again, that's not hugely controversial here now, but has been in the past. How how is it when uh, with phonics teaching? Um, does it matter if you have at home picked up a lot of whole word uh, learning techniques? So if you come into school 
uh, already sort of whole word, you know, having learnt whole words just by sight. Is it is that transition to phys- uh, phonics harder, or is it is it the same process? That's a great question. If if there's systematic research on that, I don't know about it. Um, and anytime when we're talking about early reading, anytime I don't know the literature, I figure someone's done this because there's <laughs> such an enormous literature um, on, on early reading. Uh, my guess, and, and I want to emphasize this again, my guess is that if you've, if you've done a bit of that sort of learning at home, it's, it's probably not going to interfere with, with phonics learning because this is, uh, there's, I, I just can't think of a reason, can't think of a reason that it ought to. Um, but of course, what what there's a there is a very substantial literature on is um, other home experiences that we know are very helpful to um, to children when they first start learning how to read. Um, the the big one, of course, is phonological awareness, being able to hear individual speech sounds. Um, so when we think about learning to decode in the early stages of decoding, there, uh, I find it easy to think of sort of three, three things that have to happen. Uh, children have to be able to differentiate individual letters, so you need to be able to see that a lowercase b is not the same thing as a lowercase d, even though they look sort of similar. So that's sort of a visual aspect. There's the auditory aspect. You need to hear that a B and a D sound different. Um, and then you, there's a sort of a matching problem. You need to learn which visual stimulus, the, the, the letter that looks like this, goes with this particular sound. So sort of a process of memory and association. Mm. And there is a lot of emphasis, especially among parents, on the third of these uh, because our language, um, our, our, spellings, our, our spelling system seems so opaque and, and arbitrary. Um, but it's pretty clear that among kids who really struggle with reading, it's the second uh, process, it's the hearing of, of individual speech sounds that's more often the problem. Um, that's what gives them, gives them trouble. And so the children who come into, um, come into school already having some facility with that uh, definitely have an advantage. And there's substantial literature showing that certain types of wordplay, uh, the n- wordplay that you fo- commonly find in nursery rhymes, for example, so rhyming um, alliteration where the child's hearing lots of words that start with the same, uh, start with the same speech sound. Uh, these things are helpful in in um, getting kids to hear individual speech sounds because when you hear a rhyme, you hear that there's something similar, and that helps you uh, detect that the difference between uh, bed and dead. The only difference between those is the first speech sound, and so that helps you uh, hear them individually. I guess a lot of those the, the methods of phonics teaching as well adopt rhyme and songs and 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 these sort of uh, teaching processes presumably for a similar reason. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the, these are known to be helpful, and so uh, it, frequently in preschool or when kids are just starting out, there's lots of this sorts of wordplay. And the other thing that's nice is, I mean, it's it's a win for everybody. Kids love it, uh, and they're you know they're it doesn't it doesn't feel like. Um, a difficult aspect of, of teaching reading. Uh, it's, it's just pleasure for everybody. And why do you think that phonics is so controversial, well, particularly in this case, you know, I know you said it's settled in the US, but here it, it is still like a, 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 match to some, a match to a bonfire, really. It's, um, right. it, it's, it's very uh, contentious, where, but then it is, it is taught in every school. So 
it's something that you thought people have got used to by now. So, the, you know, Gene Chal wrote the uh, a, a report in the 1960s um, that was the first really systematic literature review of comparing phonics to other methods, chiefly whole word uh, teaching at, at, at that time. Uh, and she concluded phonics has an edge, uh, and you know most reports, uh, or virtually all reports since then that have been uh, broad and systematic have drawn the same conclusion. But I bring it up because Chal in that very first report said there is really the potential to go overboard in phonics. You you can't simply sit kids down with you know worksheets or other very dull materials and drill them in phonics lessons for hours at a time. That is you know a, an overcorrection or you know a misguided, well-intentioned, uh, you know terrible method of teaching. And I think that's what people respond to when you look at the materials to. Um, uh, of phonics instruction, they they frequently are pretty boring. You know, there's just there's no getting around it. There's, as in many uh, academic tasks, parts of it are it's really really hard to make it interesting and fun. Um, Chal also noted that uh, it, it some, frequently it is interesting and fun, but that's mostly to do with the teacher. There's nothing sort of inherent in the materials that are going to make it interesting and fun. But a teacher, you know, through enthusiasm uh, and through some creativity can can make it more fun, can make it more fun for kids. So that, that was another aspect of that report that doesn't um, get emphasized very often, but is very important. She said the, the biggest difference across different reading instruction programs is really the teacher uh, more than the program. But if we're looking at programs, yes, you would definitely go with a phonics program. So that's, I think, why it's controversial. When we, when we think about learning to read, you know, one of our great concerns is that children will love reading. Mm. Uh, and you start looking at phonics worksheets and you say, my gosh, this is not the way to get kids to love reading. And so if, if phonics is sort of stage one, uh, what would what, what's the next stage once the phonic knowledge is, or uh, I guess corresponding stage, so you're, you, you're working on phonic knowledge, what, what, other, what are the other two things you're working on as well? So, well, there are two answers to that. In terms of decoding, the next thing that happens is developing fluency. And what you're, what's ha really happening there is you're developing visual representations for letters and letter and, and clumps of letters, letters that, that frequently occur together. Uh, and the advantage of these visual representations is that so now you, you don't need to sound these out. Um, seeing uh, a, a, a group of letters leads you to just uh, connect with word knowledge immediately. Um, so this is this is sight word reading, and the hypothesis is that um, this is uh, so this this sort of sounds a lot like whole word reading. Like mm. I see T H E, and I automatically know what that word is. So why bother to get kids to sound it out, especially for a word like T H E that's irregular anyway? Um, and so the answer is that in principle you could teach kids to read that way, but the problem is it, it would take an enormous amount of time mm. um, and an enormous amount of practice. And you talk about you know something that would be deadly boring. This would really be deadly boring. I think you're talking uh, about hours and hours of vocab 
learning essentially. Uh, oh my gosh, yeah, much more than hours and hours. <laughs> you know, you're talking about months and months of vocab learning. Where you know, in, in extremis, I show you dog and I say, what is this? And you say, I don't know. And I say, that's dog. Okay. Then I say, you bog looks very similar, but no, this isn't dog. This is bog, and so forth. Um, so despite the fact that this is not the way you would want to teach reading. Um, the self-teaching hypothesis has it that children teach themselves to develop these visual representations without realizing they're doing it. Uh, so instead of my showing you DOG and then telling you this is dog, uh, the child tells him or herself because they decode DOG uh, and know that it's the word dog based on the sound representation. Uh, but at the same time, they're seeing DOG. Uh, and with enough experiences like that where they're consistently seeing DOG and then um, uh, sort of decoding it and getting the mental representation, oh, this means dog, eventually just the, sa uh, the sight of DOG leads to this mental representation of the meaning of the word dog by itself. Uh, so this is this is the process of fluency. This is what's this is what's going to happen next. But let me turn back to your original question, which is: so what else is happening in um, while kids are learning decoding? And it, this is a, a really excellent question because it's something that is too often ignored. Um, when you uh, let's turn back for a moment to the three main processes I said are vital for successful reading. You need fluent decoding, you need to be able to comprehend, and you need motivation. Um, I think there's a tendency to pay attention to each of those three processes in turn when they become a problem. So decoding, it's sort of obvious when that's an issue. That's when children are first you know, being taught to read. Comprehension is, no one thinks all that much about comprehension, usually until the middle elementary grades, when children are perhaps 9 or 10 years old. That's when the expectations for reading comprehension suddenly increase. It's when most of the children in the class become fluent decoders, and fluency, I mean, continues, you know, through middle school. But um, so it, you're, you're constantly building, and probably beyond, you're constantly building, you're getting more and more fluent. Um, but there's most kids sort of turn a corner where the the decoding seems much less painstaking, and it sounds like, okay, this child, this child is reading. Uh, and now our expect it used to be good enough that they were decoding and saying the words aloud, but now our expectations increase, and we say, okay, you've got that part. Now you need to be able to understand. Mm -hmm. That's when people start to pay attention to decoding. Uh, sorry, to uh, comprehension. And that's when many children suddenly reveal that they have a problem in reading comprehension. And that's um, quite late, I guess, isn't it? If you if you spent two, three years in school by that stage and, and that's the point when someone r r discovers you have a comprehension problem, it, 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 it's, the, it's a delayed support network that's not in place there, I guess. Well, exactly. And this is it's it's a problem that was uh, the uh, there all along, or the potential of which was there all along, uh, but was hidden because comprehension expectations had been relatively low up until that point. Mm -hmm. So in in the U.S., I don't know if it's called this in Britain. In the U.S., it's called the fourth grade slump, and it refer refers to the fact that. 
um, children who come from low-income homes in particular read uh, according to our expectations, they read sort of with their class. They're reading at grade level until they hit grade four, until they're about nine, ten years old. And then all of a sudden, it's as though they've fallen off a table. Mm. All of a sudden, they're just not reading nearly as well. Um, and this is because the reading tests have changed. The tests used to have low expectations for comprehension and it was focused mostly on decoding. Now they're suddenly comprehension tests and the low-income kids aren't doing as well. What's really behind this, and this is actually uh, something else that Jean, uh, again, Jean Chal is the one who first pointed this out, but there's been lots of work on this since then. This is to do with the fact that comprehension is so driven by background knowledge that if you know something about the topic of the text that you're reading, you have an enormous advantage over someone who doesn't know anything about that topic. So when we talk about a comprehension deficit in, in low-income kids, that these kids are behind the, their wealthier peers, this is mostly a knowledge deficit. And that's not necessarily uh, that they don't know anything. It's just that they don't know the right things. Is that right? Like we're not saying that uh, there's there's a lack of knowledge because they might uh, in a, in a low income household necessarily, but it might not be the knowledge that you need to access the reading text that you've been testing. Yeah, for. I mean that that the, there's a little bit of controversy over that uh, because the uh, I would I would say that's probably that's probably not right. It's an it's an optimistic view, uh, and it's an egalitarian view. We like the idea, like well, it's it's just these kids know different things, uh, but the fact is their environment is not as rich as the well the the environment of the wealthier kids. They don't have the same opportunities that the wealthier kids have, and so. I would say it's probably a good guess that they simply don't know as much. I think you're probably right. They do know some other things that wealthy kids don't mm -hmm. that are uh, uh, not the kind of things that you need to understand uh, uh, texts of the sort that you'll encounter in school. But I think also it, it, it's, um, it, it can't be denied that learning opportunities are just reduced for these kids. They're not traveling as much. They're not as exposed to as it's many like a, ideas and books. A narrower band of knowledge, basically. So they might have I a, think that's a good right. knowledge of less stuff, basically. I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, they're, uh, and again, this isn't, it's not to do with raw ability and whether or not they can learn. It's about what their opportunities have been, the experiences they've had. And I think in most cases, their experiences are not as broad as the experiences of the wealthier kids. Mm. Um, and this, yeah, and this turns out to be, again, enormously important. There, when we think about reading comprehension, uh, a lot of times people think about think about this as a skill. They think about it as um, something that we can teach strategies for. And we can do a little bit of that. You definitely can teach strategies. There is evidence they help. But the truth is reading comprehension is really listening comprehension. Once you're a good decoder, what you're doing when you're reading is the cognitive equivalent of listening to somebody talk. There's very little difference. Mm. Um, and so when you think about it that way, it's like, well, how much better, how much, how, how much better can I make a child at listening? Like I can try and give them strategies to help them stay on task so that they really are listening. I can try and give them strategies to make sure they're trying to 
coordinate meaning of different things that have been said. And these are the kinds of things we tell kids to do in reading comprehension strategies. And that's all appropriate and, and again, helps a little bit, but doesn't help that much. Because ultimately, the, the real key to comprehension is knowing the vocabulary that's being used. And then crucially, having background knowledge that helps you fill in communication gaps. Um, when people write and also when people speak, they're constantly leaving information out. And they do that uh, because they're gambling that the reader or listener has that information in long-term memory, and so it doesn't need to be explained. So, for example, um, suppose I said to you, uh, gee, I was th my wife and I were thinking about taking one of those cruises to Alaska, but she can only get vacation in January. That's perfectly comprehensible to you, but it's only comprehensible if you know a few things, like most people, Jan, uh, it's very cold in Alaska in January. Uh, second, most people don't want to be cold on vacation. Third, uh, if you go on a cruise, that means you're going to be spending a fair amount of time outdoors, and, and maybe you need to know other stuff. But those three things, at least off the top of my head, are things you need to know. So if you don't know it, you may understand the literal meaning of what I said. Hmm. You may understand uh, there was a, he could have taken a vacation, but he's not going to. And also the second thing that was literally stated was that my wife can only get vacation in January. So you may understand that, but you've obviously missed a whole lot of what is the important aspect of the meaning of that text. Hmm. You've missed the causal link between those two things. So this is why comprehension is so. Uh, 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 comprehension is really driven by background knowledge. It's to replace information uh, that is vital to understanding the text, but that the writer has omitted. Um, and so when we talk about this, is now circling back to the question you posed to me. Sorry, like ten minutes ago. That's all right. um, what is it? What is it that um, that's happening in parallel? with learning to decode, what should be happening is ongoing building of background knowledge because you're not, they, they don't need it in obvious ways in first grade, but once they get to you know, a few years after they've learned to decode and we start having expectations about comprehension, that's when it will become apparent to the kids who, who are, are lacking background knowledge, the number of texts that they can read with good understanding is going to be very limited. I guess this brings me to, in, a, in a way to your third point about motivation is that if you are teaching phonics and, and you have a child that understands that and you have a child that has also grasped the comprehension factor and mm -hmm. then you are teaching a whole class the knowledge background because let's say in your average uh, school you might have 15 to 20 percent uh, free school meals which is a low income, low income family who are eligible for that mm -hmm. Are you damaging the motivation of the 80% who are already getting that comprehension and, and that background by teaching knowledge to the entire? Uh, should those 20% be in sort of catch-up uh, knowledge classes? or is it, it? And does that affect motivation? Or, is, or are those children sort of still benefiting from the, that refresh, if you like? It's a great question. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a great argument for starting very early. Mm -hmm. If you are, um, so the knowledge that, I, and I don't know about 
I don't know these data in Britain, but there was a very comprehensive study in the U.S., a nationally representative sample, looking at, uh, among many other factors, knowledge upon entry to kindergarten. And they found that middle-income and wealthy kids are already, in terms of knowledge acquisition, like six months ahead of the the kids from low-income households. Um, that's only going to get worse, right? So if you uh, if you wait a few years, those kids are continuing to go home every day to either really rich environments where they're learning more and more or really poor environments. So in other words, the number of kids, uh, the number of sort of middle-income and wealthy kids who are going to be bored in school because you are uh, presenting information that's old stuff for them, even if it's new for the child who's sitting next to them, who comes uh, who comes from a poor family, the the percentage of that those kids is only going to increase year by year. Hmm. Um, kids who you know, if you start in preschool and and start working to systematically build knowledge, you know, yes, the wealthy kids already know more than the poor kids, um, but that difference is as small as it's ever going to be. Um, so I think I think that's that's the time to learn. That's the time to start, I should say. And the other question around motivation, I mean, it, this is a, a growing, I'd say, discussion that uh, UK primary teachers are having is uh, where the balance sits between a challenging text that, that brings on the, the, the reading ability and, and the comprehension, indeed, of, of, of the students and uh, a text simply for, for, for the joy of reading, which may indeed be below their reading age uh, on occasions and often is. Where's you know what? Well, you know, at home, I guess they can they can make that choice freely. But in school, what should the choice be for a teacher? I mean, is it their role to push them onto the more challenging texts? I think it is. Um, and Tim Shanahan, uh, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting what what he said, but my understanding of uh, his writing is that this is this is really essential if you want children to grow in their reading, you do need to push them uh, a little bit and, and present them with challenging texts. What I would say regarding motivation is I don't see any reason not to talk to children about different types of reading work hmm. and to say, you know, to acknowledge like this is hard, like this is, uh, uh, and especially it's not just when children are, are um, uh, you know, in an English class and, and reading prose fiction. Uh, whether it's there or whether it's in science, you know, um, telling, I think it's appropriate and, and maybe essential to tell children, listen, this is, this is difficult work that we're doing here. I'm asking you to do things with this text, analyze it in ways that you wouldn't do if you were just reading it for fun. Mm -hmm. And there's different things that we that we do with text. So right now we're reading this novel, but nevertheless we're going to do really difficult things with it. And I'm, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging text in the first place, and then I'm going to ask you to do some work with this text that's challenging. That's not the same as the reading that you would do at home for fun. The reading you do at home for fun, you can pick whatever you want. It can be easy. You can peek at the ending if you want to. You can skip around. None of that is really okay when we're doing this type of work. And this type of work, maybe, uh, you know, I hope and expect it's going to be satisfying to you. And there is a certain pleasure in in the achievement of difficult work. But don't mistake it for pleasure reading. Uh, so this is this is the way I would try, and and let me be clear, I don't know of any research <laughs> indicating that what I've just said is actually going to be effective, um, but it's the be I don't think it's commonly done in schools, that, that with, uh, in classrooms, at least in in my conversations with teachers, uh, and it's the 
the way I can think of that that might help children make that distinction, right? What we're trying to do is get them to do work that's pretty challenging in school that we think is appropriate to help them grow as readers, but at the same time, not and end up with them thinking, gosh, reading is, is awful. You know, it's mentally taxing. It's difficult. I end up reading books I don't really like. I have to slog through it and so forth. Uh, we don't want that to sort of um, pollute the, uh, their potentially positive attitude towards leisure reading. And do you think, um, in the same way that you need knowledge catch up in for certain uh, students, if they're not getting that pleasure reading at home, does that time need to be made for that in the curriculum then, so they don't just get that single diet of challenging text? Do, do, do you need to make room for pleasure reading in school? This is something that, you know, there's been an enormous amount of research on this. Um, and, I, and I don't know how popular it's been in Britain. It's come and gone um, in the U.S., uh, where you have uh, it's frequently called drop everything and read or yeah, SSR sustained yeah. silent reading yeah um, and uh, it it's quite controversial there 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 are some people who really bang the drum for this and say you know there's great evidence that that this boosts motivation and boosts comprehension there is a lot of published literature on it i think a lot of the literature a lot of the studies that were done were not done very well they're very small groups of kids there's not really the right control group you're just not doing the work the way you would like it done all that said um in not in the reason not in the reading mind but in the book i wrote before that raising kids who read i actually came out uh in in favor of um uh, uh teachers and 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 schools at least considering doing something like drop everything and read um exactly because it's about the lowest pressure I can think of that will get kids to do some do some reading for pleasure mm. uh, so that if you're not you're not doing it at home here's an environment where you've got 20 minutes a few times a week or whatever it ends up being uh, where you can read purely for pleasure one hopes that you've got uh, a wonderful role model in the teacher who's helping you think through how do I select a book for pleasure uh, how do I think about it after I'm done with it? Um, uh, uh, all, all that goes in, all the things that are second nature to leisure readers, probably because because they learn them at home. And it, it, we do know that leisure reading is associated with with positive reading outcomes for kids. So if we can kickstart that in schools, I think it would be I think it's uh, would be wonderful. And so even though even though the the research literature on it is sort of thin, um, I think it's worth the risk. It's interesting you say that because my next question really is that uh, in general in terms of how education re research is, is used in education and how, how it's quoted, uh, I mentioned, I've mentioned to you before that you are one of the most quoted men in uh, UK education. Um, are you aware of when you're quoted and uh, in, in the context and is it dangerous to take bits of, of your books and, and have them used as proofs for things? I mean, you've, you've qualified quite a lot of what, of what you said today and said, you know, there's research. You, you take a very balanced view uh, in your books and, and in, in speech. Does it worry you if you're quoted you know, in some single chunks? Uh, well, you're making me think I should worry about <laughs> it. I'll say, Not I'll say that. I, yeah, I, um, yeah. I mean, the 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 short answer is I guess I don't really know because I'm you know I'm 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 aware sometimes people will um, 
certainly send me things, and especially when it's a public figure, when it's Michael Gove or Nick Gibb or something, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, frequently someone will send that to me and say, look, Nick Gibb mentioned you in a speech, which is uh, lovely and very exciting. Um, but I, I, I am very, uh, I try to be very thoughtful about the application of research and education. Um, and in fact, um, when Can You Trust the Experts was uh, the book I, uh, second book on education I wrote. And that, that book is mostly about the relationship between basic science and education and how, how fraught that relationship really is and how cautious we need to be. And, and what, I, um, what I'll frequently say is I, I feel that researchers know a limited number of things that I would list as very important and that teachers really ought to take heed of um, and then, uh, but but how those how those very important messages play out or is frequently um, in classrooms. How those play out in classrooms is uh, can be very very wide ranging. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way I described it is sort of like boundary conditions. That if you if if practice is anywhere within these very huge boundaries, like you're probably fine. Um, and what we can say is if, if, you're, if you're outside of those boundaries, it's hard to see how you're going to be successful. Um, and so the education is sometimes likened to medicine in terms of its relationship to science. And I, I actually think that's a, a very bad analogy because um, even, though, even though physicians tell me this isn't really the way it works, I think in, in the mind of most people, including myself, when we think of medicine, practitioners of medicine have very limited choices. Someone comes in with an, uh, a bacterial infection in the inner ear, you know, a doctor is supposed to do X, and if they don't do X, then they're mispracticing medicine. Mm. And so that indicates that the goal of research is to tell teachers with this child, you should do X, you know, just like, you know, a, a medicine prescription. And I think that's not right at all. Um, I don't think we're, we're close to being able to do anything like that, even if that were the goal in education. And so the, the analogy I've offered as an alternative is um, architecture, that w- there are a few things we know that you, that you really need to do if you want um, if you want uh, uh, success in a skill, you have to practice. You know, it, 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 a lot of what we end up saying is, is pretty common sense stuff that most people know already. Mm. But that's okay. You know, that's just lending research confirmation to things that are frequently common sense. Um, and so this is what I, I mean by boundary conditions. And so this is sort of like basic principles of physics to an architect that, you know, if I don't respect that, the building's just going to fall down. Mm. Um, but then there are also principles of architecture that offer choices. So there's standard ways if you're building a steel struct, steel frame skyscraper that you can put in windows. And there's several options about how to do that and maintain the structural integrity, but nevertheless have this, this hole, this fragile hole in the wall. Um, you don't have to use those methods, um, but you, they're, they're an option. And I think research in education offers those sorts of um, tools as well. So we can say, well, we know that you don't have to do, uh, uh, you don't have to implement practice this way, but here's one way we know that research indicates is a pretty effective way of implementing practice. It's much more um, diplomatic, I guess, than some of the 
way research is used and it's interesting you talk and, and, about boundaries and, yeah and, and, and what i what i want to emphasize about this just sorry to interrupt john just to, to no, sort no, of complete on, the please. metaphor is that you know in architecture nothing is prescriptive you know you need to know materials science and you need to know physics but that doesn't tell you how to build a bridge and in the same way there are certain principles uh, that you need to respect about how the mind works and how children's emotional lives work and how learning works and so forth uh, but within that, the bridge can look like whatever you want it to look like. There are lots and lots of terrific ways of uh, of building a bridge. And that's how you'd like uh, teachers perhaps then to take what you said today and in, in your books about the way the the reading mind as such. This is this is this is your sort of basics of physics, and now go and build your your own bridge in your classroom as, as such. That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean the reading mind is is an example of sort of here's here's what we know about. It's really sort of what the end state is. It's sort of like here's in a in an accomplished reader. This is what reading looks like. This is the uh, this is the goal that you're that you're aiming towards. Uh, and then there are bits and pieces in there about how to get there, especially at the end of each chapter. Uh, but again, not not prescriptive. Mm. And I guess my final question should be that you know you spend your your life reading very complex bits of research. On um, on reading and, and other aspects of, of uh, cognitive science, etc., and psychology, what what do you read for pleasure? Where what is your sort of leisure reading at home? Uh, I don't I don't read for pl pleasure at home at all. I'm <laughs> I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say because I'm I'm always reading professional stuff. But I have a a longish um, commute, uh, and so I read um, I, I listen to books uh, on tape. Um, when I'm uh, uh, when I'm uh, commuting to work, and recently that's been uh, biographies of U.S. presidents, uh, and I've actually just started um, a new book that's uh, about a journalist who uh, sort of snuck into North Korea and spent a couple of uh, uh, spent a year or two there. Oh, very interesting. And do you? Um, uh in terms of your selection of books, then you know U.S. presidents, uh, a bit of uh, a thriller, I guess, in in North Korea, is that is that is the choice of leisure book that a person makes uh, indicative of anything, or is it just pure? I mean, if it does does liking Harry Potter or James Patterson say anything about you as a person? I'm the wrong psychologist to ask <laughs> that question. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, like you, I I I. I, I I sort of think probably, but you know, yeah, I'm the wrong type of psychologist to ask that question. I'm afraid. I think, uh, as a prepared answer, U.S. presidents as as your leisure readings maintains your uh, reputation as a as a serious man of education. <laughs> I get. I suppose it does. It. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm more of a, a consumer of of thrillers when I'm on a plane or something like that. But um, this is this has actually been quite interesting, and it, it is it is sort of a self conscious effort to. Uh, it, there's, I don't know. As an adult, I find, I think a lot of other adults find the same pleasure. There are these sort of nuggets and bits and pieces you've collected um, over over your education and over you know just over your lifetime, and you've not put them together very coherently. Um, and so I read I read fairly deeply um, into the Enlightenment and the Romantic period about. Mm -hmm. Eight or ten years ago, and uh, as a as a 
really um, interesting time of intellectual history. And that, that brought the same type of pleasure of feeling like, oh, I'm finally assembling all these bits and pieces into something a little more coherent. And so that's what I was, I've been trying to do with U.S. history. Piece it together a little bit. The recent mm -hmm. incarnation of uh, U.S. politics is, is challenging, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not there yet. So I'm I'm only, you know, I'm still in the early 19th century in my US president. So I've got a way to go till I get to 45. The the cloud is on the horizon, I guess. Maybe so. <laughs> Thanks Dan for your time today. It's been really interesting. And uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Again soon. Cheers. All right. Bye.